You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Because I am a sports fan, I have not cut my cable cord. But because I also love premium TV and movies, I have a child very into Disney and a partner who loves HBO and etc., etc., well, now we basically have two cable bills each month. We have the regular bill, which is larger than a streaming platform bill. But then we have all the streaming platform bills, which combine to be much larger than the cable bill. And somehow, I don't think this is the viewing utopia I was promised at the onset of the streaming era. To be fair, it's not just customers like me and probably many of you who are lamenting what could have been. The streaming companies themselves aren't exactly happy about the situation. And that's why you've seen shows cancelled or not renewed or never released, or fewer big-budget attempts to create a new Game of Thrones, and more reality content, and now advertising which is what many people cut the cord to get away from. The ongoing writers and actor strikes haven't helped the industry. But it goes beyond that. There are simply too many players, too many things to watch, and too many monthly bills to pay. Sooner or later, all of that will come to a head. And what will we be left with? And why does it seem like... Whatever we're left with will feel a lot like the old cable TV packages that millions of people came to streaming to get away from. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Angela Watercutter is a senior editor at Wired who explored uh, possibly the end of the streaming era or the beginning of the second streaming era. Angela? Uh, Yeah, I think any of them, uh, any of those responses could be uh, considered accurate in this case. Well, it was only like a couple of years ago that Amazon spent hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, their Lord of the Rings show, Rings of Power. That seems almost ludicrous today? Like, what made it a sound business decision back then? I think it was just, at least when it was greenlit, maybe not necessarily when it hit the air. It was sort of that moment of kind of peak prestige TV. You know, every streamer had to have a big, glossy show that was going to drive in a lot of subscribers and get them, you know, get the really high viewership numbers that, you know, every streamer sort of, I think, dreams about at night. And, you know, having a having a show like Rings of Power seemed like a surefire way to do that, right? You know, J.R.R. Tolkien adaptations have been hot since Peter Jackson was making them low these many years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos is a kind of on-the-record Tolkien fan. And I think that a lot of people really did end up enjoying the show. But when you look at things now, it seems sort of, It just seems like a lot of money regardless, you know, whether or not it was the ultimate return on investment that Amazon wanted. I don't know. I don't work at Amazon, but I think that it was just something that, you know, a streamer like them wanted to sort of have, you know, to put a feather in their cap to kind of have that marquee show. And even just a couple of years later, has the calculus shifted? Would somebody make uh, Rings of Power now if it was on the table? I think maybe, but it would have to be 
you know, a sort of really big gamble at a really, you know, well-heeled studio. And, you know, a lot of streamers have had off quarters or off months lately. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there may not be the deep coffers that, that they once had, you know, We've also kind of adapted a lot of the big adaptable properties. You know, we have an entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we maybe are running a little thin on uh, new big things that, you know, kind of would guarantee audiences and be worth $250 million or $300 million, at least for like one season or five episodes or something. Well, in your piece, you kind of mention that's an example of the streaming space getting tighter. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? How, How is that happening? From my perspective, I think it has a lot to do with there's just more competition in the market. And where it used to be Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, then it was Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Apple TV Plus. HBO has always existed, but it you know became HBO Max and not just Max. Like there are so many different streaming options for consumers now mm-hmm. that people are eventually are only going to be like, I can do like five of these. You know, they they seem relatively affordable to most folks, right? You know, it's $6, $10, something like that. They're getting cheaper because of the ad-supported models. Right. But at the same time, you know, I did the math even in my own home once, you know, and I was like, I'm spending $60, $70 on, you know, maybe 10 streaming services or something like that, uh, including like what I maybe rent from, you know, like an Amazon or an Apple. And that's the cost of what like a cable package used to be one or two decades ago. And plus you have to, you know, pay for an internet package to get all that streaming content. Eventually you kind of just do the math and say, I don't know that I can pay for 10 services. Maybe I can pay for five. And so now you have a lot of streamers sort of playing hungry, hungry hippos over a smaller and smaller pool of potential streaming customers. And what does that do or has it done recently to the type of shows that these companies make? You know, that's why I asked about Rings of Power, because it does seem like those days are done or dying anyway. Yeah, you know, because I think with Rings of Power, because it it is such an expansive series and you can do offshoots and you go on a side quest There's like this sort of almost unspoken promise that like this could go on for many seasons and be Mm -hmm. this epic kind of thing. Whereas it seems like now a streamer like a Netflix or something will do a show that they think has two pretty good seasons and then maybe cut it loose, right? Like the the long arc, breaking bad kind of series that that gets a lot of attention and is able to sort of accumulate audiences over many different seasons seems less likely. The streamers it seems always are looking for a sort of big hit that brings in a lot of people and then they have to be moving on to the next thing Mm -hmm. to keep people there and reduce what is known in the industry as churn, which is, you know, people who sign up or do that free month or whatever and then then leave. So given all that, does that mean, I mean, you mentioned uh, Breaking Bad, we've talked about Game of Thrones. Are the days of peak TV or the golden age of TV done then? I mean... Done is a big statement, but I think they are changing, right? Like, you know, we kind of had peak TV or like maybe the first wave of peak TV when when you had like Deadwood on HBO and... The Sopranos, The Wire. The Sopranos, Wire, all of those, Oz even, you know, HBO originals. And you had Mad Men on AMC and like those were still all happening on, you know, on cable networks. And then Netflix makes House of Cards and kind of... 
puts the streamers in that game. Hmm. And then everybody else was trying to do, you know, some version of prestige TV. And then we kind of flooded the market, right? And then everything was prestige TV, but yet people were still watching Two and a Half Men. You know, like there was this sort of idea that there was maybe a little bit too much good TV and not enough people to watch it. And so like everything kind of had to recalibrate. What I've predicted before could happen is that, you know, for years we had a big three in television, right? There was CBS, ABC, at least in the States, there was, you know, CBS, ABC, NBC. And, you know, that's what your family could watch at night, right? And then, you know, Fox eventually came on a little bit later. And as it is now, we have a lot of streaming services that I think over time could either, you know, merge or, you know, get somehow acquired. You know, we almost saw a little bit of this with the Warner Brothers Discovery merger Mm -hmm. until once again, we'll have three or four big streaming services that are essentially our networks, right? And then once like there's, you know, we're the the streamer that you come to for, for this, you know, Disney Plus becomes the streamer of, you know, family content and animated series. Yeah. And, you know, Netflix becomes you know, Bridgerton, Uh, you know, like then everybody kind of gets their shtick. You know, I I think we could have yet a, maybe I guess it would be like a third or fourth wave of prestige, but I think we're going to see a lot of tumult until that happens. Well, tell me why we're seeing cancellations and uh, on top of cancellations, I guess, and maybe you could explain to us how this works, shows not even debuting that have already been made. Yeah, I mean, I think this happened most, recently with, as I mentioned, the the Warner Brothers Discovery merger, you know, there was this sort of idea that, you know, uh, that a show that maybe the studio has decided wasn't going to get the kind of response they wanted or pull in the viewers they want, you know, it's easier to make it a tax write-off than it is to air it. Hmm. You know, each time a network or studio makes a show, you know, it is a bit of a it is a bit of a gamble. You know, you're sort of betting that so many people will want to watch and it'll be worth, you know, this amount of production costs. And, you know, I think sometimes a show comes in even after it's been, you know, after it's been shot and like they just, it doesn't look like it's going to give them the the results that they want and they shelve it. Mm-hmm. That or they go up for six months and then disappear. I think it was Disney Plus pulled the Willow series not too long ago. You know, like there's just sort of things where, once they kind of stop serving their purpose or whatever, they kind of evaporate. And there's no way to juice them either. I, I talk about this when we talk about podcasts a lot because it's it's a very similar model in terms of having it totally on demand. You can't now take a show and put it after Friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or put it before something else and you're guaranteed to get some of those eyeballs like checking it out and maybe getting hooked. Everything starts from zero. So people have to make a conscious choice in order to watch something, which must make um, the fringier shows in this sea of content like impossible to break through. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the promise of streaming was that it could help with that, as opposed to, like, saying, like, this, you know, episode of whatever is going to air in the States after, say, like, Monday Night Football or something. You know, the idea was that the algorithms that streamers would understand that, you know, you like strange fringe space shows about, you know, dogs or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, then it would be able to, like, push other things like that into your queue, but again, we have, we have this this glut of content where right. like, even in those scenarios, there's already so much in that queue 
already. You've already got five space dog shows waiting for you to watch. <laughs> yeah, there's less and less time to to get through all of our dogs and space shows. Yeah, and so yeah, you like you said, you don't, you're not able to juice things, right? Unless you get some great word of mouth or. You know, maybe there's a, a star involved that a lot of people are always going to show up for or whatever. Yeah, it's hard to get, you know, what we commonly think of as buzz. In terms of recent cancellations or shelving of shows, I understand there are uh, business decisions behind it, and those are, you know, influenced by money. Mm -hmm. How much of that has to do with the ongoing uh, writers and actors' strikes? Well, you know, this happened recently with uh, A League of Their Own, which had been, you know, greenlit for another another season. And that was a successful first season. I, you know, I personally loved it. I think there were other critics who, you know, sort of really appreciated what that show was doing. And, you know, even though the, that next season had been greenlit, like, they ended up canceling it. And then Abby Jacobson from Broad City, who was one of the co-creators on the show, you know, got on social media and said, blaming this on the on the strikes, you know, isn't the real reason. Hmm. There's something else kind of going on here. And, like, again, I, I am not the PR department in the studio, so okay. I don't know. But I think that, like, what kind of feels like it happens behind the scenes is that, like, if a studio can say, like, isn't it awful that, you know, these folks are on strikes and denying you your show, hmm. you know, like you kind of can shift public perception or something. Right. Even if that's not really the case. Again, I I cannot say whether or not that's what a studio is thinking. That's tough. Listen, as a veteran of, uh, of sports coverage uh, and strikes or lockouts between players and owners, this is, is very familiar. You know, every side wants to blame the other for denying you your favorite thing. Right. So, yeah, so to answer your question, like, I do think that the strikes are playing a role in, like, cancellations and things getting held up because, I mean, there are things that can't film and that can't be written and whatnot. And, like, that's the whole point of a strike, right? Right. But to say that, like, oh, well, if they just would stop asking for pay, um, we could get this show on the road, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but there's other factors involved here, you know? Well, one of those factors, and, and this is the only other question I want to ask about the strike, but, you know, what they're asking for, aside from just pay, uh, is residuals, mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to streaming, right? Because then yeah. we don't have to explain the entire uh, way this works, but uh, network TV and cable TV pay actors a lot more money after the fact than streaming does. Yeah. You've already talked about how the industry is getting tighter and, and budgets are getting smaller. If this is resolved and uh, the actors get the residuals that they're looking for, how does that further impact the industry? You know, I want to be, I don't want to be too Pollyannish about it, but I think it kind of could end up being good for everybody. Um, good. You know, there's been a lot of talk. I think Warner Brothers Discovery is, and some of the other studios had said, you know, like they're already seeing these, you know, massive losses, you know, because of the strikes and because of, you know, not being able to to produce new content. Right. And then eventually, if it hasn't happened already, there's going to be a tipping point at which the amount of money studios are losing is equal to or greater than what it would cost to just pay the residuals mm -hmm. that the, you know, the striking SAG members and striking WGA members are asking for. And it's like, well, <laughs> if that's the case, what are we kind of fighting over here? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think ultimately being able to settle this will 
get people, you know, the residuals they're looking for and actually allow studios to once again make a lot more content. Maybe that is Pollyannish of me, but uh, that is that is what I think could happen. The other thing I want to ask you about in the middle of all this is live sports, because listen, I still have a cable TV subscription. That is like the sole reason I have it. Um, And now recently I'm being asked to uh, watch a Blue Jays game on Apple TV or maybe subscribe to DAZN to get my particular Sunday NFL game that I want. And where does sports come into the streaming wars and how valuable is it to whoever figures it out? Sports is huge. It seems to be the last piece that streaming is trying to crack, right? Like they, uh, you know, Amazon got what Thursday night football and whether it's college sports or something else, like everybody is trying to have their own sort of sports offering. Everybody is trying to get some corner of that market because that comes with a huge amount of viewership. You know, there are sports fans all over the place. And like you said, for a long time, the reason a lot of us, myself included, didn't ever fully cut the cable was because the only way to watch live sports was, you know, was through a cable provider. And so I do think that there is going to be a larger push into live sports. And you're going to see what I imagine will be the same sort of thing where, you know, people who traditionally got live sports from network TV and ESPN, basically, or maybe like they had an NBA League Pass or something, you know, like one or two main sources of of televised sports, you know, now, I think you have to have three or four different channels or services or whatever just to watch every NFL game. Mm-hmm. It was wild this weekend. So uh, where I live in New York, uh, I'm a Spectrum customer, which is part of this whole deal, dust up that happened last week with Disney and Charter. And so I turned on my TV over the weekend and I get this blank screen on um, ESPN. It's like, it was kind of this funny passive aggressive thing. Like, you know, (laughs) we try very hard to bring our customers everything they want. but Right. It's somebody else's fault, though. Which basically meant that I had to then log in, figure out my Disney Plus bundle, get my ESPN Plus turned on just so I could watch the U.S. Open. You know, I'm like, I'm just trying to watch Coco Groff win a title, you know. But it was the same thing where it's just like we're sort of all battling over these little these little chunks of the TV market. And now, once again, it's all kind of getting fractured. And if you want to be able to watch everything, you need three different services and four different channels and this package and that yeah. one goal, even just within one league of one sport in one geographic area. As we look forward to a streaming market where, you know, budgets are tighter and um, expenses maybe, including residuals, are greater. Is that the push behind the move towards these ad-supported models? And I, I mean, personally, I just have to say, I find it super offensive that the reason I signed up for these things was to get away from ads and they're <laughs> going to come find me anyway. I feel I feel like a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Why is this happening and, and how uh, is it being perceived in the industry? I mean, I think it's just happening because, you know, streamers need to pad their income somehow. And, you know, having ad-supported models can give them a few more subscribers can and also, you know, bring them in a second line of revenue. And I think people are sort of cautiously optimistic about it in terms of like whether or not it will ultimately, you know, work for streamers to have these. I think that they're good for folks who are in that camp of like, 
I can only afford two or three of these things, you know, mm-hmm. per month. And so like maybe it gives them a little more access to content that they wouldn't have had otherwise. But yeah, I mean it it does just feel like so we're just network TV again, which you know kind of gets back to what I was saying about, you know, we used to have the big three networks and now we're just gonna have the big three streaming services or the big five streaming services or whatever the case may be. Well, this was going to be my last question. So you brought me right to it. It's like so far we've talked about um, having a ton of content, having some big budget stuff, but increasingly less big budget stuff. You mentioned now we're going to have a big three or big five and a bunch of other little specialty ones. Um, And now we've got ads and hopefully we've got residuals. Are we just making cable television all over again? Like what the F? Congratulations. We've reinvented a wheel. You know, and, you know, to our other question about, you know, will there be a a sort of third wave of of peak TV or, you know, prestige TV? The thing that was so great for HBO for so long was that because it wasn't worried about advertisers because it made its revenue from people paying $10 a month or whatever. A premium price at the time. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have to worry about advertisers. And so they could make a show like Oz, right? They could make a show like Deadwood with all the swearing and nudity you liked, and it could be controversial or whatever. And it didn't matter because they weren't trying to, you know, tell the fine folks at Damprid that they, you know, weren't going to have to run their commercial right after someone was shot on camera or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it kind of freed them up to make those sort of things. And that was the, it was the same thing with streaming. You know, there weren't ads against it. And so they could kind of make what they wanted within reason. And so if we do go back to this thing where everything is an ad-supported model and the content that gets made under that is the kind that ends up being put a put a mop commercial next to it, mm-hmm. then maybe yet another new streaming service comes around that's like, we'll never have ads and, you know, drop all the F-bombs you like. Um, <laughs> and, and then... You know, we again, we we invent yet another wheel. History is doomed to repeat itself, right? Like, so I'll be on this exact podcast again in 10 years being like, well, you know. Hey, if we make it 10 years, I'll be happy to have you back. Right. If podcasting and streaming last 10 years, we'll both, and, and journalism for that matter, <laughs> uh, all last 10 years, uh, maybe we'll, maybe we're doing all right. Yeah, we need to reinvent our wheel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for this. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was really fun, Jordan. Appreciate it. Angela Watercutter from Wired. That was The Big Story for more, including past looks at the streaming wars. You can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you have an opinion on any of this stuff, and lots of you do, and we want to hear them, you can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can shoot us an email using hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. Or you can give us a call, 416-935-5935, and tell us how you feel, how much you pay for all the things you watch. The Big Story, though, is always free, unless you want it without ads, in which case you can subscribe to The Big Story Plus on Apple. But other than that, it is always free, five days a week, and it's available everywhere, including smart speakers where you simply have to ask yours to play The Big Story podcast. Joe Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is also a producer on the show. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our business manager. 
And I'm your host and executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. And we'll talk Monday.